you want to open your Bibles to Numbers 35, so I thought I was concluding last Sunday with a bronze serpent, but some, uh, Pastor Nathan's been very busy, and he asked me to teach another Sunday, so I thought, why don't we do another type? And so I got to study this week for this morning, and it might carry into next Sunday, too, about cities of refuge being types of Christ and the refuge we have in him. So 12 nations, or 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel move into the promised land. Pretty sure this is all uh, familiar material. And we're actually Saturday morning looking at the book of Judges in my group there, about 10 or 15 young people, including three of my kids. We were talking about Joshua just yesterday and how the nation of Israel went into the land, uh, largely kind of conquered the land as a nation, but then assigned the portions of the land to each of the 12 tribes. And then it's kind of like the tribes inherited those portions and then had the responsibility to uh, really exterminate or drive out all the Canaanites that were there kind of in little skirmishes and so forth. Uh, What was the tribe that didn't receive a portion in the land? The Levites didn't, right? So you kind of have two tribes that stand out. You have Judah's, the kingly tribe. You have Levi, which is the, let's say, the priestly tribe. And they, the priests came from them. Not all Levites were priests, but the descendants of Aaron were priests. And so the Levites were spread out throughout the entire land. If you want to, um, I said turn to Numbers 35. Don't, you don't have to turn these other verses, but just here's one verse. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. Actually, the tithe, some people don't know this, but the tithe was primarily meant to pay the priests. That's what the, the tithe was almost like a tax to provide for them. There's Deuteronomy 18.1, many other verses and numbers, and Joshua make the same point. So Levi's assigned these duties associated with the sanctuary, religious activity of the nation, um, including being the nation's priests. For the Lord your God has chosen Levi out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and all his sons for all time. So not given inheritance in the land, but they obviously needed to live somewhere, and so God assigns them the settlements throughout the nation. So look with me in Numbers 35, verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in, and you shall give to the Levites pasture lands and around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. So by, by pro- spreading the Levites out throughout the city or throughout the nation, what did that do? What did that do for all the people then? By spreading the Levites throughout the whole land, what did that do for all of the Israelites? Yeah, gave them all access. That's exactly right. Yep, they all had access to them. So what's interesting is under the New Covenant, we tend to think that many of these old covenant things are done away with, such as the priesthood. We might even think, well, there's no high priest anymore. There's no priesthood anymore. There's no temple anymore. There's no sacrifices anymore. But is that true? It's true in one sense, but it's completely untrue in another sense. I'll say it like this. Do we, is there still a high priest? Yes, Christ is our, is our high priest. Uh, is there still a temple? What's the temple? Yeah, we're, we're the temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 6, 19. What about sacrifices? Are there sacrifices today? 
Well, in a sense, they're sacrifices of praise. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Uh, in a sense, like when we point to ourselves as being priests, we could also point to ourselves as being sacrifices. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Romans 12:1. So just like there's a temple, high priest, sacrifices, there's also a continuing priesthood, the priesthood of all believers. I remember the shock that was uh, to me coming out of the Catholic Church because I had placed priests in such a revered um, position. I, I knew God through them. They stood as these mediators on the earth through which I had my relationship. I thought I had my relationship with the Lord through them as well as through Mary and the saints. And so to be told that all, all believers are priests seemed very shocking, uh, very disagreeable to me at first. But for, here's a few verses, 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Uh, verse 9 says the same thing, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It should make sense why this was the case. In the Old Testament, only the priests had access uh, to God, but under the New Covenant, because sin has been removed through christ all believers have access to god so you say well why why would all believe why would the believers under the new covenant be priests but all of the believers under the old covenant were not priests obviously lots of believers under the old covenant were not priests well that's because there was such separation between god and man under the old covenant because christ's sacrifice had not yet taken place but following uh, Christ's sacrifice, with sin being removed, this barrier between God and man, we have been reconciled to God and have this access that wasn't available in the Old Testament. So it just makes sense that we would all be able to see ourselves as priests. Any other questions or thoughts before we move on? Okay, well, the reason I was mentioning that about the priesthood, and maybe this is more of a devotional thought, but it seems to me that what, what the Lord did with the priests throughout the nation of israel or throughout the promised land is largely what god has done with priests us in the new under the new covenant so just as god spread out the priests under the old covenant so that everyone had access to them or so the priests had access to all the people you might say what has god done with us he has spread us out you are to be a priest you are people are to have access to you they are to come um, to know god not through you in a mediating sense or intercessory sense but come to know you as they see Christ through you, as you share the gospel with them. So in that, it's a real parallel situation where you are spread out. You're not spread out through the promised land, but you're spread out where? In what sense? Through your what? Your neighborhood, your workplace, your school, to be a priest to those people around you, that you would point them toward Christ. Any thoughts? Okay, so you, you might look and, and, and I've said this, you know, while I'm in ministry, I say that's my profession. It's not a real accurate way to um, describe myself. I shouldn't describe myself that way. It'd actually be more accurate for me to say that I'm supposed to equip people for the work of the ministry. Instead of saying I'm in ministry, I should say that I equip others for the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, Christ gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. And so actually, you guys should see yourselves being in ministry. You should see yourselves being sent out to, to share Christ with others. Um, okay, next, Numbers 35. Well, our, and I guess one of the things is I, I, I had reflected on this many times over um, 
my years as a pastor that almost all of my time is spent with believers. I'm actually kind of pleasant, sur pleasantly surprised when I find myself in a healthy conversation with an unbeliever because of how rarely I encounter unbelievers. So if, if, it would, if pastors can't, are, are going to be tending to their flocks, that's where most of their time and energy is invested, and that's the way that it should be, then in a sense it's almost like the flock or the sheep have the responsibility to bring other people into the fold, you may say. You're the ones who would go out to invite other people to become sheep and uh, followers of Christ. And so, I don't know if you've ever seen it, that, thought of it that way before, but you're the ones who have all of the access to unbelievers. Pastors are going to be spending their time with believers, with their congregations, but you're the ones that the Lord wants to use to be reaching, reaching the lost world. Any thoughts or anything before we move on? Okay, let's read a long section here, verses 4 through 12, and then we'll talk about some of the parts from it. Verse 4, the pastor lands of the cities, which you shall give to the Levites, shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around, and you shall measure outside the city on the east side two thousand cubits, and on the south side two thousand cubits, and on the west side two thousand cubits, and on the north side two thousand cubits, the city being in the middle. This shall belong to them as past. Is my wife here? Because I'm going to give me some water. <laughs> I swallowed her. Thanks. This shall belong to them as pasture land for their cities. The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer, and we'll talk about that in a moment, the manslayer to flee, and in addition to them you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48, so notice there's 42, then there's an additional six to get 48, with their pasture lands. And as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the, lar thank you very much, Andrew. from the larger tribes you shall take many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits shall give of its cities to the Levites. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select these to be cities of refuge, for you that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there the city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment so how many towns were the levites given 48 yeah and and larger tribes or um, tribes that were given larger portions of land would have more cities in there it's all it's uh, proportionate based on the size of the tribe larger tribes that have more cities in them, smaller tribes have, would have less, less cities in them. Six of these 48 towns were special. Uh, they were called cities of refuge. So some years ago, I think it was the first year I attended Christian Heritage, I went to a workshop that a gentleman taught on the Old Covenant, and he, he was talking. He, have you ever had someone really describe something in a way you've, you've had familiarity, but when they talk about it, you really see yourself there and look at it in a different light? Well, that's happened because I understood in the Old Testament, and I don't, I don't want to be too graphic, but it is in the Bible that, um, you know, people stoned other people, that, when, that that was the capital punishment. And so this gentleman was describing, the gentleman teaching the workshop, what it was like under the Old Covenant and how, who or what was really the police force under the Old Covenant? The, average, the other people, yeah, the average person was. The average person, and he said that if you were an Israelite, then you would, and I, it was, you know, just to think about it, it, it's very challenging, but he talked about if you were an Israelite, then you'd have a responsibility to pick up a stone if someone was to be stoned. 
And have, have you really thought about that or put yourself in that place and what that would, what that would um, be like if you had to carry out judgment like that and how, uh, to me, it's, it's a, it'd be a really shocking thing to consider. And so as he was doing that, just describing this, all, all biblical, there was no, you couldn't object to it. He's just sharing these verses from the word of God and the responsibility that we would have and made me very thankful I don't live under, under the old covenant for that reason. You know, normally you think, I'm glad I don't live under the old covenant so I don't have to offer sacrifices. Well, another reason I'm glad I don't live under the old covenant is so I wouldn't have to be part of stoning anyone. And so it, it just gave me a kind of a different appreciation for life in the ancient world, how harsh and severe it was, um, how difficult it was compared to our world today, or at least the world we know in the United States. Still plenty of violence and persecution in other parts of the world, but we, we are spared from much of it. So there's no police force. The whole reason I'm sharing that <clears throat> is um, the people are the police force. There's no lawyers that get assigned to cases. There's no real investigation. If, uh, how, would, how would cases be investigated to determine guilt or innocence? And if you see how there would be that question, then you also see why there was a need for the cities of refuge. Because when, if, if you had a family member that was uh, killed or murdered, it was your responsibility, the closest blood relative had the responsibility to take, to take vengeance or be what's called the avenger of blood. So the closest relative to the person who had been killed is known as the avenger of blood, and that person is to seek out that person that killed their family member and then execute that person uh, as justice for what, what has taken place. Okay, any questions or anything that'll make sense? The, the cities of refuge? Well, there was... I mean, in their sure. country, there was no, no, no systems or anything? These, this is pretty much it. Were there, two or three witnesses required? there were two or three witnesses. Yeah, that's a good point. So, I, I, I mean, I, I hadn't... Um, yeah, if anyone has thoughts, please feel free to point that out. So that's one of the things Jim just said. There'd have to be two or three witnesses before someone would be found uh, guilty. Dave, go ahead. Sure. Now let me ask you something, and I don't know. Were those more civil situations, or were they also criminal situations that were brought to Moses? Okay. Okay, I, I tended to see those more civilly, and then he established the, the 70 uh, elders when his father-in-law said, you're going to kill yourself doing this. So let's say, um, well, actually, if you're here, why don't you go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 19. We will turn back to Numbers 35. It's just a few chapters to the right. So the nearest blood relative to the deceased person is charged with the responsibility of executing the murder. And I think we know that because of even before you become a Christian or even if you're outside the church, you've, you have heard many times, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? And so what we're talking about aligns with that standard or that practice in the Old Testament. And I think some people hear eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth and think, wow, I can't believe God would say that. That's so severe. That's so harsh of him. It's really important to understand that eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth was for mitigating purposes. Because what was the temptation if someone took your eye? You're going to take what? You're going to take two eyes right? Or someone, you're going to find someone knocks out one of your teeth, what are you going to do? You're going to knock out all of their teeth. 
Or worse, someone knocks out your eye, you're going to take their life, right? And so what this did was God was setting up actually um, a system that was very appropriate, limited punishment to fit the crime, not the other way around. It wasn't an issue of God's severity. It was, I wouldn't say it was an issue of God's mercy, but I would say it was an issue, an issue of God's justice to ensure that the punishment fit the crime and did not go further than it actually should, which would be very, um, you know, very tempting for people when, when they had been, you know, hurt physically like that. Okay, any questions on that? And so the idea is if someone's taken your life, you can't take their life. This is why this, the, the Avenger of Blood is in, is in place for this. If someone takes your eye, you can take their eye. If someone takes your teeth, you can take their tooth. If someone takes your life, you're not alive to take their life. So who takes their life then? That's why the Avenger of Blood is in place to be the one who takes the life of that person. So eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. And that's in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, 21. It says, if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The punishment needs to fit the crime. The blood relative, though, when they want to take the life or um, are convinced they should take the life of this person who's taken the life of their family member, there are some things that can interfere with this and prevent them from being objective, and that would be their emotions, it could be their passions, it could be their anger at the loss of a family member that could cloud their judgment. So the person could end up avenging the relative's death by indiscriminately killing someone who was actually innocent, uh, had killed someone by accident. And so there's a difference between murder and killing, right? The Bible forbids murder, it doesn't forbid killing. So if you ever killed someone that broke into your home and was a threat to your family, that would not be the same as murdering someone. So there, it, it's, uh, there can be very defensible reasons for killing, not defensible reasons for, for murder. But someone could kill someone on accident. And here in Deuteronomy 19, look in verse 5 and 6 to see a description of some of these accidents. Someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head of the axe slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. Then this person may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him. Manslayer would be the one that killed someone accidentally, and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not, the manslayer did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. He didn't, he didn't murder that person. He accidentally killed them. So he should not be executed as a form of punishment. Kind of think of um, another way I was just reflecting on this happening is because we talk, we hear about plowing in the Bible or, or, or multiple people plowing together, working together. And perhaps two guys are in a field and one guy's plowing and the other guy trips and perhaps falls and he can't stop his plow in time. And maybe the plow goes over his friend. Uh, maybe the animals do too. Perhaps the, the man isn't killed right then, but he could very easily succumb to his injuries later, right? You can't rush him to the ER. They don't have the same medical care we do. Maybe, maybe it's an infection or maybe it's something else that takes his life a couple days later. Well, as soon as that person passes away, then you can imagine the people that might be upset at the person that was plowing. And so there's all these details associated with this that have to be worked out to determine a person's guilt or innocence. And that's really the, the point of the cities of refuge. Okay, any questions or thoughts or anything before we move on some more? Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21 kind of gives a scenario. Okay. If 
Okay. So, yeah, this is King James. Yes. A mob gets upset and they just grab somebody and they're just going to lynch them. Yes. Yeah, it, it, that, it reminds Could me sound of like that. sort of unbridled violence or desire for, desire for revenge. People uh -huh. they're, when they're wound up, they're not thinking, you know, the, 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 the facts of the case. They're just wound okay. up. They know they have a little bit of information and they just sure. go. And, that, and that's exactly what's trying to be forbidden because of the potential for someone's emotions and passions and hurt and anger to control them and lead them to, you know, execute this person. And so then for the details to be worked out, hey, good to see you. How are you doing? Do you want some snacks? Or are you with Daniel? Yeah. This is a good friend of our family. Did you, are you here for food? <laughs> That's <laughs> all right. We're good to see you. Hey, we're all glad to see you. We're all glad to see you. There's some snacks back there. You go ahead and help yourself, okay? Cool. Yeah. And then you can sit by Daniel, my friend Daniel over there, if you like. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks for coming, uh -huh. Mr. Hanson. <clears throat> dogs at home. Your dog's at home? <laughs> Most of the time I see you, you're walking your dog. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ooh, walk him, like, over here. Yep. Well, you walk him a lot more than over there. I see you walk him down a horseshoe lake. You walk him all around town. He gets a lot of exercise. Oh, yeah. So. Well, are you kidding me, guy? Well, just one second here. Let's not waste that. Looking good. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're making me look bad doing that stuff around here. I don't, I can't do that anymore. Girls really love. Girls love muscles? What? What? <laughs> yeah, they do, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we got a lot of girls in here. We don't, let's not stumble them, okay? Let's not yeah. stumble the girls in here. I, yeah, I, you can get the food. I didn't, you got to, so. Right here, too. Both sides? <laughs> All right. Go, go and get some food. You can take a seat with, with Daniel over there. Oh, we got dogs at home. Your dogs at home, Eric? Yeah. Okay. Dogs is at home. Robbie is camping. Your, Robbie, your mom, is camping. Okay. Robbie and Nick. Oh, Robbie and Nick are camping. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, glad you're here, Eric. Good to see you. Go help yourself back there, okay? Sorry, thank you. Yes, Ken. <laughs> nice and loudly, Ken. Yes. Uh, let me just add a thought. Good. Go ahead. That's come up in my mind. I'm teaching Revelation in an adult class at Castle Rock. Uh-huh. Yes, the mark of the beast, well said. Yeah. As I read that, I found that over and over, God eased the penalty that he was putting on people because he is merciful even to the ungodly. That's right. Mm, well amazing, amazing thing to think. Here he mm -hmm. is, it's near the end of the earth and the end of time, and he's easing up the threats and the things he's giving to the people on earth who are ungodly people. And uh, I think it, it taught me a lesson. I need to be merciful too. Okay. So easy to be just mad at somebody and doing whatever. 
And that's not what God would do. Mm. That's right. I, it's a good point. You just need to remember that. All right. Thank you, Ken, for the reminder. It's, a, it's interesting you're talking about mercy during uh, what is viewed as largely one of the most uh, harshest seasons of human history from, from, God's, from our perspective toward God's behavior. So thank you for sharing that, Ken. Yes, go ahead, Jake. Nice and lovely. You can really see how our judicial system is based on these, um, I guess, what, what, what we see in Scripture here. Because it oh. seems like premeditated murder is viewed much harsher in our judicial system. So is it here. And manslaughter is a much lighter sentence. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Yeah. Yep, very good. Yeah, trying to recognize motive in those, in those situations where people died. Yep. Bye. All right, see you later. Good to see you. Have a good day. Yeah, well, you got to feed your muscles, keep those things growing, Eric. And a banana, all right, good job. That's high in protein? Okay. All right, God bless you, Eric. See you later. Okay, so, so the person who recognizes, so someone who kills someone accidentally or mistakenly, then flees to one of these cities of refuge so that all the details associated with that uh, uh, killing can be determined. Actually, it can be determined whether, it was a kill, whether someone was killed or whether someone was murdered. So the cities of refuge provided a haven for this accused person to flee while the death is investigated, guilt or innocence is determined. Now, probably at this point, you can already start to see some of the typology with Christ, right? Um, you, I don't want to have you turn too many places, but at least one place you should write down is Hebrews 6.18. Hebrews 6.18, because that's where the New Testament confirms for us that this is a type of Christ. So I shared something with you during our first week, and I've been reflecting on this. I haven't really come to a conclusion. I had not heard this before, that someone distinguished between illustrations and types. Someone said that something is only a type if there's New Testament confirmation. So uh, the bronze serpent is definitely a type because Jesus identified it as such. The uh, manna is obviously a type, the rock in the wilderness a type because of Paul's identification of it in 1 Corinthians 10. Hebrews 10, I can't remember the verse, talks about the veil in the temple being a type of Christ. When the veil was torn, it gave people access to the presence of God, just like when Christ's body was torn on the cross, it gave us access to God. That's not my interpretation, that's what the author of Hebrews said. So that the veil in the temple would be a type of Christ's body. And Joseph, who we regularly see as a type, according to this person's definition, would not be a type, would be an illustration. And so I've just kind of been reflecting on that, you know, and whether, whether, Joseph, whether there's real weight to what that person said. But we can say this, a city of refuge would definitely be a type because we have the New Testament confirmation from Hebrews 6, verse 18. And we'll look at that. Um, well, here it is. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And so that's what the person would do. They'd flee to this city of refuge, and then they would basically just hold on to the horns of the altar for dear life, because this is the only way that they're going to be able to stay alive. And what's interesting is the Septuagint, if you've never heard this before, even if there's a few people, it's worth knowing this. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. Well, when Greek, when Alexander Great spread Grecian culture through the known world, people weren't reading the Old Testament Hebrew. They needed to be able to read it in Greek. And so when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, that Greek translation of the Old Testament, so that the whole Bible was in Greek, Old and New Testament alike, is called the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, 
the word for fled for refuge is the same word that's used for cities of refuge. So it seems that the, the authors of the Septuagint, or translators, excuse me, of the Septuagint saw this type and established it pretty clear for us. So thinking about the ancient world, Vicky was just kind of mentioning this. It seems like a you know, pretty terrifying place to live. I will say one thing, the gentleman who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath comes to mind as someone who was executed or stoned. But for all of the commands that discussed execution when they were violated, it doesn't seem to me like there were a whole lot of people who were executed or stoned. Maybe, I'm, maybe that's just, of course, that's just my opinion. But it doesn't seem like for as much as being stoned is discussed as a form of punishment, that there were many people who had to experience that. And so perhaps the very firm you know, law of God, at least with the nation of Israel, um, people were smart enough to avoid punishments that were going to be capital ones that resulted in the loss of their lives and so seemed to behave themselves. So Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. Romans 6.23 says the wages, uh, the wages or the punishment for sin is death. So in that sense, if, Christ, if the city of refuge is a picture or type of Christ, who or what is a picture or type of us? The city of refuge is a picture or type of Christ. What is, a, what is a picture or type of us? What? The manslayer, the person who's fleeing, right? The person who has wrath hanging over them. The person who is going to experience uh, judgment or justice. The person who, uh, you know, is, is really should be fleeing for their lives. This person who, who has impending punishment against them because we deserve death because of our sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, though, it says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is the enemy that is, let's say you could say, chasing us or pursuing us because of our sin. And I would encourage you to view death as an enemy or in your mind personify death because scripture does that. I'm not telling you to do something except that scripture does it first. Many times in Revelation and in 1 Corinthians, death is capitalized because it's being personified. It is being pictured as this enemy that Christ has defeated on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, it says, when this corruptible, referring to our earthly bodies, has put on incorruption, referring to the glorified bodies we receive, and this mortal, again, referring to our um, earthly bodies, has put on immortality, again, referring to the earthly bodies we receive, then shall be brought to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then it's as though Paul talking to death itself, this enemy says, death, where is your sting? In other words, you can no longer hurt us. Or Hades, Hades is another way to refer to death. Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is most people's uh, greatest fear. God gives us the victory over it through Christ. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 14, it, interestingly, God want, seems to want to give us such confidence over Christ's victory over death, or maybe another way to say it is, God seems to want to give us such confidence over death's defeat that Revelation 20 talks about death going where? Does someone say to hell? Yeah, that Revelation 20 talks about death itself being cast into hell and Hades being cast into hell. Why is, you kind of could kind of, you know, be confused by that unless you understand that death has been personified and God just wants us that confident in Christ's victory over it 
that it's an enemy that has been defeated that strongly in our lives. No, no reason any longer for the believer to, to fear it. So the next thing, when individuals uh, entered the cities of refuge, they were supposed to be welcomed by the priests. So the priests were there, um, you know, I think the imagery would be like with open arms for these people that are, or any questions or thoughts before we move on to the next kind of aspect or point about the typology? Go ahead, Susanna. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. Until proven guilty or something? I don't know beyond that. I just huh. know that the, the King Jordan yeah, that it still runs like that today. Oh. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. If they do like war between the families now, mm-hmm. it's their job to protect you, even though you're a stranger. You know? hmm. It's still their right. Same, same. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yeah, I always appreciate people that can come from overseas and share things that we miss here. In the United States, I'm, uh, I had heard that in the Middle East, should someone be under your roof, even if they're your enemy, once they're under your roof, they are your, uh, you're to protect them, essentially. And, and not to defend, um, you know, Lot's actions. They're, they're obviously uh, wicked and confused, but one of the, or in the end of the book of Judges, some, that real vile account is you see the guys, uh, the instances of men w- being willing to send out their daughters, obviously horrific, but to protect the people under their roofs, that's like a very twisted view of what you're talking about, where Lot and the people at the end of J- the book of Judges willing to send out, um, you know, women or daughters to protect the people under their roof had fallen far enough from God, but still maintaining enough of that cultural standard that when someone's under your roof, you're supposed to provide them with a safe haven. And that's kind of what, what is in view here with the cities of refuge providing that safe haven, welcoming people with, with open arms. Um, and be, if we kind of continue the analogy of all Christians being priests, then we have that same responsibility as a church to receive people, uh, unbelievers or unchurched people who come in, they aren't subjected to the same, to the same judgment or scrutiny that believers are. They... Uh, you know, we would take people and they're under this season of grace. It's not to say that if people came here and they were living with someone or dressed terribly and modestly, that if they've been here for years or even, you know, quite a few months, that we're not going to address it with them. But if people first come in, they don't know the Lord, it's their first exposure to church, we're going to receive them with open arms. We're not going to address these things with them, you know, on their first Sunday, blow them out of the water or anything like that. And that was when I first came to church, I was in a situation similar to that, and I was very thankful that none of these things were addressed in my life, because had they been, I probably wouldn't have returned the following Sunday, and it didn't take very long. Nobody had to say anything to me. I I became a Christian, and then I became heavily convicted about certain things in my life, and uh, no no one even had to have a conversation. Uh, uh, Daniel? Yeah. Okay. uh, Thanks, Daniel. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about judging those inside, not judging those outside. But when people who have been on the outside or unbelievers first come inside, they're still like outsiders in a sense. They're not Christians yet, so they're extended that amount of grace. 
Um, and so I see an analogy here where the cities of refuge, a, a church is a little like a city of refuge for unbelievers or unchurched people to come and be, be welcomed like that, a community or city for, for these refugees. Next, if you, in this discussion of the cities of refuge, are following me when we talk about an avenger pursuing someone, being pursued by an avenger, there's a lot of an, uh, symbolism there for us. Numbers 35, 19, look at that verse with me. Numbers 35, 19. <clears throat> the avenger of blood, which would be the closest relative to the person who has been killed, the avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death when he meets him, he shall put him to death. So you see there's no deliberation, there's no investigation, there's no mercy, there's no compassion shown. It's simply you find that person and then you kill them as quickly as possible. And one of the things, I, maybe I should have drawn attention to it when we read it a little earlier, is it, sort of, it actually sort of looks like this. The person who kills someone on accident is fleeing to the city of refuge and we're to picture that avenger chasing that person down. And so the idea is that Avenger could reach them. If, they, if the Avenger reached that person before they reached the city of refuge, then they're going to be executed, which is why those cities had to be spread out through the land so that everyone could find them. But you still have this imagery in your mind of being pursued by this Avenger. And is, there, is that true for us? Is there someone pursuing us? Do we have someone that, that you know, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, watchful, your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus told Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you as wheat. The avenger wanted to put the death, um, put to death the person who was accused, wanted to kill him. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. So it's almost worse for us because at least in the Old Testament, <clears throat> you're being pursued by an avenger of blood who could get tired you know, who could need to rest, um, but the devil, I mean, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't tire, he doesn't rest, he, he never gives up the pursuit or anything like that, and so we have an, an enemy that's always after us, which makes it worse for us spiritually, or why we should be more thankful for what we have in Christ, because just as the city of refuge delivers the inhabitants from the wrath of the avenger, so too does Jesus deliver us from the wrath to come, First Thessalonians 1.10. So now one of the questions you, you could have is when someone went into the city of refuge, how long did they stay there? Till the death of the high priest. That makes a particularly strong um, parallel with Christ. Look in Numbers 35, verse 25. The congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. So we can definitely see Christ through this. Hebrews 2.17 says that he's a faithful and a merciful high priest for us. I don't think it's a stretch to see that just as this high priest was anointed prior to his death, we see that our high priest Christ was anointed as well prior to his death. Um, in John 12, Jesus was anointed by Mary, the sister of Martha, and the sister of Lazarus. Um, you know, only 
I guess weeks probably or, or less before his before his death when he was uh, at Bethany before going to Jerusalem. So Jesus was the high priest who was anointed with oil before his death, and it's his death that provides for our freedom, just like the high priest's death provided the freedom for the manslayer. Any thoughts before we consider the next type or next example of the type? Okay, the cities had to be well stocked. They had to have all of the supplies so that people could be um, cared for. They had everything that they needed there when they fled to this city. The same is true for us in a spiritual. So physically, the cities provided everything that the person needed. Spiritually, as our city of refuge, Christ provides everything that we need. Second Peter 1, 3, he's given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If you look in Numbers 35, 26 to 28 with me, Numbers 35, 26 to 28. If the manslayer shall at any time, notice this, go beyond the boundaries of the city of refuge to which he fled, and then look, then he'll be killed. And then look in verse 28. He must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest, but after then he can return to his, his possession in the land. So, I was just reflecting on this, how important it was for people to remain in the city of refuge or abide in it, just as it, we must remain in Christ. We must be in Christ. We must abide in him. It is not enough to be close to him, um, you know, kind of know of him, believe he exists. We must, we must be in Christ. Leaving the city meant judgment. Um, leaving Christ means judgment for us. John 15, 6, Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, he is, if anyone doesn't remain in me as their city of refuge, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and burned. But as long as the accused remains in the city, their future is ensured. They're going to be safe. And the same is true for us in Christ. Jesus is going to, it says, 1 Corinthians 1 8, Jesus will sustain you to the end guiltless. Keep us innocent before, before God as long as we're in him. So the city provided everything the inhabitants needed. So too does Jesus provide everything we need in him. Ephesians 1.3, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Any thoughts before we move on to the next? They had to leave yeah, they did. That's, I hadn't thought, that's a good point too. Yeah. 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 I had to leave everything. Good point. Yep. Like some people have to leave everything for Christ. Okay. Look in Numbers 35, verse 15. It says, These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel. We know that already, but then notice this. And for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. Who sees how this also makes an interesting picture of Christ? Containing the word, let's say, availability, right? Chris? Very good. Yep, the cities of refuge weren't just for Israelites. You would think that, right? We're in the promised land. Everyone else is driven out. Of course, this isn't going to be available to anyone except, except the Israelites, but it says here that any of the strangers or any of the sojourners were also, um, the city's refuge were also available or accessible to them, which is the same for us with Christ. Anyone, Jew, Gentile alike, can flee to him to be saved. 
God's offer of salvation in Christ available to everyone. God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son, whoever, whosoever will believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nobody needed to be turned away. I was kind of thinking as we sing, you know, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And so it's not just the, not just the, the Jew or anyone else. It's uh, Christ is available for all of us. Um, the gates of the cities were never locked, so people could always enter, enter them. Um, with Jesus, you don't need to discover some secret spiritual insight with him. It's, uh, I mean, it's, have you ever thought about how there are books, just volumes, and they continue to come out every year? It's a blessing. Always new sermons just expositing on the gospel because of the great depth to it, the beauty of Christ. Um, the beauty of justification, we can talk about it in such, such great detail. I mean, you could have sermons for weeks or months just talking about justification and sanctification. It seems like this ultra uh, deep concept which, or truth or doctrine, which it is, but at the same time, how much is needed to be saved? I mean, then we're moving from the super broad, deep to this very <laughs> simple, you know, narrow, just needing to for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him to believe that Jesus died for your sins is to be saved. Not needing to know, not needing to know all the justification, not needing to know all about sanctification, not needing to know all about propitiation, not needing to know all about substitutionary atonement. <laughs> Just believe God, Jesus died for your sins. So, um, so the city always, lo- go ahead and turn to Romans 10 with me, please. Yeah, well said. Even children can understand. That's been a beautiful thing for me as a father. I hope all of you who don't have children yet uh, are able to have children for many reasons. One of the wonderful blessings as a Christian father is having family Bible studies and hearing my children share spiritual truths that it seems pretty evident to me God revealed to them. They uh, have, it's one of the things I would say to look for as an evidence of salvation with your children don't look just for them to be able to repeat things that they've heard, but look for them to be able to understand spiritual truths. And that's been a real blessing when my children have shared things that I had not taught them. And I thought kind of, you know, like, almost, I don't want to sound too dramatic with this, but like when Jesus was talking to Peter, and what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, God has revealed this to you, Peter. This isn't something you learned of your own, of your own effort. And so, all right, so Romans 10. Look in verse 6 with me. These verses are about kind of what we're talking about, the availability of Christ or the nearness or accessibility of Christ, being even nearer to us than the cities of refuge are. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. So Paul's saying, I don't know if this sounds confusing, but Paul is saying, if you want to be saved, what do you not have to do? And he just gave an example. If you want to be saved, you don't have to travel all the way up to heaven because Christ has ascended, right? That's where he is when Paul wrote this, and bring Christ down to be saved. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, because before Christ ascended, he descended, he died on the cross, buried in the ground, three days, three nights, and you're not going to have to go into the ground if you were alive when Christ was buried, and bring him up from the ground to be saved. Verse 8, instead, what does it say? And he's quoting the Old Testament. So what does the Old Testament say? The word is near you 
it, this is how near salvation is. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because this is all that's needed to be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So that great accessibility and, uh, and availability for us in, uh, to have Christ save us, not, not some difficult, terrible lengths we must go to first. So I think whenever we preach, so it's like, um, you know, narrow is the way and it's hard. Wide is the way and it's easy. I would say this, it's easy to get saved. It's hard to be saved. It's easy to get saved, but the Christian life itself is not an easy life. It's easy to become a Christian, but it's not easy to be a Christian or remain a Christian. <laughs> but to be one, there are no works. There's no effort involved except to repent and put faith in Christ. So go ahead, Daniel. Nice and lovely. Jesus said it is finished. Yeah, the work, yeah. Yeah, well said, Daniel. Thank you. Okay, so a few things about these cities. Um, you don't have to turn to Deuteronomy 19, but it says in verse 3, measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you of possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. So they're strategically placed, access for everyone. Here's a few things. The roads leading to a city of refuge were to be clearly designated I couldn't find verses for this, but um, I saw it in a commentary, so I, I will say that. I searched, I looked at a few different commentaries, I couldn't find a verse supporting some of this, but it was in a commentary that I trust, so. The roads leading to cities were designated by signposts at crossroads, marking them off with miklot, the word which means refuge. The roads leading to a city were made twice the normal width of other roads, were kept clear of debris. Bridges were built over ravines, um, to keep the roads going so the accused didn't have the hazard of, you know, descending or ascending uh, rivers and, and mountains. The roads were to be inspected and repaired every spring after heavy rains. Again, the cities were to be well stocked with supplies to provide for the accused who were forced to stay possibly for um, some number of years. And the Jews went to these lengths because these lengths could literally mean the difference between life and death for people. If someone fled there, what happens if someone's fleeing for his life and the avenger is in pursuit and then he reaches a river? You know, and there's no bridge there. The bridge has been washed out. Well, then the person just kind of turns and looks at their pursuer like the Hebrews had to turn and look at the Egyptians chasing them, right? And so that's why they made sure this, all of this uh, travel was possible. So, all right, I think that's, I think we'll go ahead and stop there by, and continue um, next week. Any thoughts or questions? Well, I will make one other point, actually. One of the other things I was reflecting on with this was there was, do you notice there was no other alternative? There just was no other alternative. I couldn't see anything in the Mosaic Law that said, okay, if you don't want to go to the city of refuge because you don't like it, or it's not fancy enough for you, or it requires, you know, too much work, you can do this instead. It even says you cannot buy your yeah. way out. It says that. Oh, it did? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this is it. No alternative. It was the city of refuge or it was judgment is the city of refuge or it was the wrath of the avenger and so i just was thinking of john 14 6 i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me very very exclusive a very very narrow way there was no other alternative and then probably the last thing that it really helped me appreciate the beauty of christ who did the cities of refuge help and this this might be the most important thing i say this morning who did the cities of refuge help 
They, did, they didn't help the guilty, did they? Because what happened if you're in the city of refuge and they determine you're guilty and you murdered someone, then what? Yeah, that's it. You're judged. You're punished. So you can be in the city of refuge, but when it's investigated and determined that you're guilty, the city of refuge serves no further benefit for you. So kind of beautifully, I was appreciating this, as much as the city of refuge was for the innocent, Christ is for the guilty. Every type breaks down at some point. If a type didn't break down, it wouldn't be a type. It would be the substance, or it would be the reality, or it would be what we have in Christ. So every type must break down at some point, and this is where that type breaks down, that a city of refuge could only help those people who almost didn't really need it because they were innocent. But Christ helps the guilty. That's who he's for, which is why he's the true and greater city of refuge in my mind. All right, any thoughts or anything before I close in prayer? Hmm, that's beautiful. Very good. Thanks, Susanna. I'll, if you didn't hear her, I'll repeat it. Correct me if I don't portray it accurately, but Susanna was pointing out that you saw, you could see how Christ was a city of refuge during his earthly ministry by the people he received, by the refugees that fled to him, whether it was, I mean, the criticism of Christ was his relationship with, with um, sinners and tax collectors and harlots and drunkards, and so he really was that city of refuge to receive those people that, that were guilty. Is that accurate? Okay, and that we can be the same, so thank you, Susanna. Anyone else? Father, we thank you for the refuge that we have in Christ. We are thankful that as Hebrews 6, 18 says, we can flee to him and cling to him and find, find refuge. But how much greater he is because he doesn't just give us refuge if we're innocent. I mean, what, what benefit would that be for any of us who are all guilty? We thank you that Christ provides refuge for us, uh, saves us from wrath that's against us, saves us from the avenger that would pursue us and accuse us, um, despite all of our guilt. So we thank you that, he, that he's a refuge for the guilty, our strong tower, our, our fortress, our deliverer. What a, what a beautiful reality we have, Lord, as we reflect on your son and what he is to each of us, a, a savior from our sins. Help us to always be mindful of that reality and even uh, bring with us into the worship service to follow, Lord. Thank you for this time this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.